is Ashley Klimmer. I'm the Director of Programs and Community Engagement here at the Chapel. So on behalf of everyone here, I'd just like to welcome you all here to this space. I'm curious if anyone is visiting for the very first time. Okay, a couple people, all right. Keep your hands out, those who are here for the first time. Now, all of you have been coming to the chapel for a long time, you know the space. I want you to look around, I want you to see who these new people are. Will you just take a moment to turn to those individuals and welcome them, please? Don't be, don't be shy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. People are smiling. That's always a good way to begin. <laughs> um, so for those of you all who are here for the first time, welcome. This is a sacred space that was opened in 1971. Uh, it sits at the intersection of art, spirituality, and human rights. It, it is the entire work of art by an artist named Mark Rothko. So you'll see surrounding you are these 14 enormous paintings. He not only created the paintings, but he also designed this entire environment. And he created it as a, a place for people to come, to sit, to reflect. So it was opened in 1971 and consecrated and dedicated as a place for people for all religions or none at all. And we're open every single day of the year um, from 10 a.m. until 6 p.m. for people to come, to sit. Depending on the time of day you come, uh, you'll have a very different experience. You might notice that this is actually natural light that's flooding in. So on a day that's really bright, you'll come and you'll look and you'll see the paintings are almost like a, a bright uh, purple or plum. Other times you come today, it's a little more muted. Or maybe you come in December at the end of the day uh, and it's almost black in here. So it really does depend on the, the time of day. In addition to being a, a place, a quiet place for reflection, we also have public programs that we offer throughout the year, many different types of events ranging from concerts to um, conversations around different social justice issues. So today's program is part of a series called 12 Moments, Exploring Spiritual and Faith Traditions. It's something that we've been offering since 2005. It's always the first Wednesday of the month from 12 to 1. And we invite different representatives and leaders with, within various spiritual and uh, religious communities from all over Houston to come and to lead both an educational and experiential practice. And what's really interesting about what we've done this year is we decided to just focus in a little bit more. And we came up with the topic for this year, which is really exploring our shared humanity. And then each month, we identify a different theme. And we invite um, someone from a religious community to respond to that theme. So last month, it was resilience. And we offered that in conjunction with the one year anniversary of Hurricane Harvey. And today, what we're going to be reflecting within the Jewish tradition uh, is difference. So to get started, what I'd like to do, I'm gonna ask you to talk to each other again. So um, <laughs> make you stretch outside yourself and get comfortable. I wanna ask that you just take a moment to reflect on this word difference. So let's just take a moment of silence. Just close your eyes. And think about this word difference. And think about, think about a time in your life when you've experienced difference, or when you've observed difference, or when you notice difference. And there's probably a lot that comes. So you can, you can find the one that would feel most comfortable for you to share. And then when you feel ready, I want you to open your eyes 
and turn to someone close to you, ideally someone you don't know, but if you're more comfortable turning to someone you know, that's okay too. If you're turning to someone you don't know, just take a moment to introduce yourself, say your name, and then share, share your story of difference with the person. And if you're sitting by yourself on a bench, you can turn around or turn to the person beside you, or I'll come talk to you. Okay, we're d Do you have it on? Okay. Okay, we're going to start wrapping up the conversations everybody. So if you'll just share your final words or switch to the other person if you haven't already. We'll take one more moment. I can tell you're all listening. Okay, well now I'd like to transition to why we're all here today, which is to be able to spend some time with uh, Rabbi Gordon exploring this topic of difference. So I'd like to say a few introductory words about him for those of you who are not familiar, but there is an entire uh, biography listed, not entire, but there is a short biography <laughs> listed in our uh, printed brochure here. So Rabbi Dan Gordon has been a spiritual leader of Temple Beth Torah since 1998. He is also a chaplain for St. Luke's Hospital and a volunteer prison chaplain and very involved in the interfaith community 
He's a longtime friend of the Rothko Chapel. He's, I think, done many things here, from participating in our interfaith Thanksgiving that we have every year to uh, leading, I think, weddings, officiating weddings. And I don't know if I'm going to say this word right, but he also has an international reputation as a Majid? Magid, um, a sacred storyteller. So for those of you who were with us last month, uh, we re really rooted our time together in sharing stories. And we're going to continue that thread today. And uh, what Rabbi Gordon will be doing is exploring this topic of difference through stories. So now I would like to uh, pass the mic to him figuratively. And thank you all again for being here. If you'll just take a moment, if you haven't already, silence your cell phones or turn them off. We are recording this offering, so this is something that we'll make available on our website, and you can share with anyone uh, who wasn't able to be with us today. And if you'll just also refrain from photography, we're going to be taking a couple pictures just to document this experience, and we'll make those available on our website as well. Um, and we'll also have some time at the very end for any questions. Oh, yes, ma'am, or right now. because I talk very fast. Okay. <laughs> so I think that Rabbi Gordon will do better than I am with, with that. So on that note, um, please join me in welcoming him. Thank you all. Thank you. If you feel like joining in and you get it a little bit off, it won't matter. The words are easy. That is called a nigun, or nigun, depending on what part of the world you come from. And it's basically a prayer without words or a song without words. And it's a way that, um, and I actually just decided to start with the niggin this morning because the space is one that you don't need words to describe these paintings. You don't need words to describe the feeling that you might have in a space like this. And sometimes words are very limiting. And so in the Jewish tradition, the niggin, the song without words, and they might do this for five minutes, half an hour, just a way of getting into it. And it can get faster and slower and louder and softer. And it's a, just a way, it, it isn't exactly a chant. There are also chants in the Jewish tradition. Am I going slowly enough? Thank you. <laughs> yes. 
and, and you could just wait, wait, you know, wave frantically if I'm going too fast. Um, that there's a lot of mystery in the Jewish tradition. Now, the subject of difference is such a broad, broad subject. Um, my new friend, Eran, um, if I'm permitted to, to share what he shared, um, he, talked about, he talked about the death of his mother and the, just the concept of life being short. What came up in my mind was being the slowest kid in gym class and having a nickname, Slow Kid. The things that make us different, we think about religion and race and political views, but there are so many other things that bring about this concept of difference, including self-awareness. And how we feel has such an impact on who we are. And so I thought I'd, the other thing that I want to share with you about the Jewish tradition is a concept called midrash. Midrash is a term that is used to explain things that the Bible might be very cryptic about. Um, those who are familiar with the Bible may recognize that it doesn't answer every question. It opens the door for questions. The Jewish people are known as people who question. Um, and so what the scholars did in the, in the ancient times was took the Bible and asked the questions that others were not asking. Asked the questions that the Bible didn't answer. So for instance, um, in Genesis chapter 12, there is a scene where Abraham, who was at that time called Abram, is having a conversation with God. And God tells Abram to leave your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great blessing. Is this familiar to some people here? Um, what may not be familiar is the question, why did God single out Abram? And so the rabbis created a story. And this is what a midrash is. It's a story about what happens when you read between the lines. Our legend is that the Bible, or the Torah as we call it, is written in black and white. And the black is the text of what we're taught happened, and the white is what might have happened. And so they created a story about young Abraham, who was actually in the story called, those of you who are familiar know that his name was Abram and was later changed to Abraham, but in the story he's called Abraham because the timelessness of these stories is meant to be so that time doesn't matter. And so young Abraham is watching his father's shop. What was his father's profession? His father was a manufacturer of statues that people would worship as if they were gods. And this was a common practice in that time. And he had to go get supplies. Abraham was left watching the shop. And as he sees these statues that are representing gods, he said, we're supposed to gift the gods, aren't we? And so he brings them food to eat. And do you know what they do with the food? 
Nothing. They're statues. And so Abraham quotes from the Psalms, which is kind of interesting because King David is attributed to have written, having written the Psalms, and King David lived thousands of years after Abraham, but stories are timeless. And so Abraham quotes from the Psalms and says, they have eyes, but they see not, ears, but they hear not, noses, but they smell not, and tongues, but they taste not. And he decides that he's going to make a dramatic statement. He takes a stick, he smashes every idol in the shop, except for one, and puts the stick beside the one that is still intact. His father comes home, says, what is this mess? And Abraham says, well, they got into this argument about which one was the strongest, and this guy won. And his father says, I don't buy it. They're just stone and clay. And Abraham says, if they are just stone and clay, why do you worship them? And then, God says to Abraham, it's time to leave your father's house and go to another land and set out on a new way of thinking. So this story, has anyone heard that before? One or two, not many, because it is taught to every Jewish Sunday school child in about second grade, and then when they grow up and become adults and start looking for it in the text, they're astounded that they don't find it. Because it's not in the Bible. It was a story to help embellish and to answer a question, why does God and Abraham have a special relationship? And I bring this up in terms of difference, because According to tradition, Abraham would have been somebody who thought for himself, who, gave, who took a risk, and who went into his inner self. And so whether or not, it whether or not that resonates with you as a biblical kind of thing, whether or not the Bible is part of, of what is part of your life, that it's a story that helps bring other things to light. A story that helps us look into ourselves at a time of when do we need to take a risk? When do we need to be comfortable or cognizant of what we have inside? And so the next story I'd like to share with you actually is based on a midrash that comes following that, but I'm, I've modified it a bit. And it's about somebody who hated his job because his job was boring. It was dull. It was repetitive. And the worst part of it was he felt he didn't make a difference. You see, he was called a stone cutter. And the stone cutter had to, every day, take a hammer and pound it against the base of a mountain and try to create stones from the mountain. 
And every time a stone would break off, he would lug the heavy stone over to a pile to be taken away to be used. And then he would take the hammer again and keep on pounding. And no matter how many stones he made, the mountain appeared unchanged. And the stone cutter felt like he made no difference at all. And to make things worse, the hot sun would pound down on his head. It would burn his skin. It would make him tired and sweaty. It would feel weak and powerless. And he had a reason for that. He blamed the sun. He blamed the sun for how bad he was feeling. He got so angry that he cursed the sun. He yelled at the sun. He said, son, I'm mad at you. You make me feel so weak. You make me feel so, so powerless. Son, you must be the most powerful thing in all the world. I wish I was the sun. Then I'd be the most powerful thing in all the world. And you know what happened? Miraculously, the stone cutter became the sun. Woo! And the sun was hot. Oh, that sun was hot. And it shined down on the world. It made things bright and it made things warm. And the sun reveled in its glory. And it was proud and happy to now be the most powerful thing in all the world. Until it looked down and saw part of the earth was looking dark and cool. And the sun thought, how could this be? And it looked down and saw a dark cloud in its way. And it thought, if the cloud can block me so easily, maybe the cloud is more powerful than I am. I wish I were a cloud. Then I'd be the most powerful thing in all the world. And you know what happened? The sun became a cloud. That cloud was cool. That cloud was so cool, it just floated around, floating around, casting darkness over the world, sprinkling raindrops. The cloud was reveling and feeling like it was the most powerful thing in all the world until, whoa, the cloud got blown away by a powerful gust of... And the cloud did not like that. It thought if the wind can blow me around so easily, maybe a wind is more powerful than I am. I wish I were a wind. And then I'd be the most powerful thing in all the world. And you know what happened? The cloud became a wind. And the wind blew all over, blowing its power, blowing leaves off of trees and roofs off of houses. The wind was blowing around, feeling like it was the most powerful thing of all, until... The wind stopped because there was something in its way that it couldn't get past. Do you know what it was? A mountain. And the wind did not like that. And it thought, if a mountain can stop me so easily, maybe a mountain is more powerful than I am. I wish I were a mountain. And then I'd be the most powerful thing in all the world. And you know what happened? The wind became a mountain who stood tall and strong and firm, who cast shade from the sun, who broke up the clouds, who stopped the wind, and was now proud and happy to know it was finally the most powerful thing in all the world. Until. Chip, chip. Until. Chip, chip. The mountain was feeling a little shaky. It, it, it sensed that its powerful base was being broken up. It looked down and it saw 
being broken into stones. How could this be? There was a human being with a hammer pounding away at its base, and the mountain thought, if a person can change me so easily, maybe people are more powerful than I am. I wish I were human. Then I'd be the most powerful thing of all. And you know what happened. The mountain became a stone cutter. A person who was proud and happy to know that the power within people is the power to move mountains. As Ashley started us with thinking about differences, would anyone else like to share something that came to your mind or came to uh, when you think about the word difference? Is difference a negative? Yes. So two words came to me right away, and we John and I talked about this, and the first thing that came to me was actually beauty, because until there's difference, everything is rather bland. And so in difference, you actually then can see both things for their uniqueness. So that was the first thing. And then thinking about that, um, it made me think about the nature of contrast and, and how when something is different, it provokes curiosity, and that that's such a rich thing to have. So if, if the only thing I ever know is, is blue, and that's all I ever know. It isn't until I find orange or green or purple that it, I can then get curious about the nature of what color is. So those actually are positives to me. I don't see them Lovely. as negatives. Yeah. Yes. Other thoughts? It, it's, you know, it's very interesting in this room because you can look at these paintings and see black splotches, and as Ashley was saying, depending on the lighting, or you see the little subtle difference between a spot that looks a little more purple. Um, one of my favorite times of day is dusk, when you look out and you see a sky and trees, and if you had to pick what color exactly it is, even Crayola, with 106 different colors, wouldn't come up with an exact color. And it might change within moments. And the difference of beauty, being able to just see that contrast, is a lovely idea. Um, when we think of differences, beauty came to your mind and contrast. What other things come to people's minds? younger, I was lucky enough to spend some time overseas in a different land uh, where they spoke a different language. And so I felt very different. Uh, but then um, I took the time and the effort to learn that language and spent many years abroad. And it's one of the greatest things I did in my life. But I, uh, 
and once that happens, the differences start to, you begin to realize uh, there aren't, those differences are just, how would the Buddha say, they're just illusions. <laughs> and uh, I think that's one of the best lessons. And so I just recently came back from overseas. Uh, it's something I love, and it's been a huge part of my life. The difference of illusions. Interesting. Interesting. Other thoughts? If you let them. Differences can be a bridge to understanding if you let them. It requires an awareness. It requires an awareness. And it's a very interesting segue into another story that, um, that I hadn't thought to share, but, but feels right at this time. And it's a legend about the wisdom of King Solomon. King Solomon was known primarily for his wisdom and his wealth. And King Solomon was also assigned to build a holy temple in Jerusalem that was going to be a shrine for all time. And he was assigned this task in part because his father, King David, was the one who brought the people to Jerusalem. But King David was known for many different things, including poetry and music, but also for being a warrior. And the temple in Jerusalem was meant to be a temple of peace. And in a dream, Solomon was told by his father, David, that you are to build a temple of peace, and so you are not permitted to use metal, to use metal objects in the building, because metal is an implement of war. Well, Solomon wasn't sure how he was going to build a big structure without any metal. And one of his advisors told him that he knew of a worm that could eat through stone. And Solomon said, I must have this worm. And the advisor, Beniah was his name, Beniah said, but the worm is in the possession of a demon king. And the demon king does not like to be disturbed. And Solomon said, I must have that worm summoned. And in a puff of smoke, the demon king was summoned. The demon king's name was Ashmedai. And Ashmedai came in a puff of smoke. He was the most grotesque figure you could imagine. Although, if you're really thinking about respecting differences, he could have been the most beautiful thing you could imagine. He was grayish, purplish in color. He had wings and horns and claws. He was eight feet tall. And he said, Solomon, why do you bother me? And Solomon said, you have something I need. You have the worm that eats through stone. And the demon king said, is that all you want? Put his paws together or his claws together. And there produced a leather box. Solomon opened the box and saw the worm was there. The demon king said, now let me go. You have what you want. And Solomon said, I think you have more of what I want. And I don't know what it is yet. I'm going to keep you here imprisoned in my palace until I find out what I can learn from you. I'm going to 
come up with one question that will help me know what you in the underworld can give me to help me rule in this world. And so the demon was shackled and Solomon went about the task of having the temple built. And the demon would watch through the window. And one day, Solomon was walking along, and all of a sudden, without explanation, he was overcome by an incredible thirst. He couldn't stand it, and he wondered, why am I so thirsty? And he looked down, and he saw a pool of water, and he said, thank goodness this water is here. He reached down to take a handful of water and he sipped and got a mouthful of sand because the water was not water. And he heard some laughter and saw the demon watching in the window. Another time he was walking along and he was overcome by hunger. And, as luck would have it, there was a tree, a fruit tree, right in front of him. He reached up to pick a piece of fruit, and his hand was bloodied. Because the tree was not a tree. It was a stone pillar. And Solomon questioned, what is going on here? And then he went to the demon and he said, Ever since you have been here, some strange things are happening. Things are not what they seem. And I think I know what it is I want to learn from you. I want to learn about illusion. Impossible, said the demon. No mortal can know about illusion. I will not teach you anything. And Solomon said, I will keep you shackled and imprisoned here. And the, and the demon said, well, I don't care. Because demons live forever. I'll just wait until you die. And Solomon was beside himself. He didn't know what to do until the demon said, I do have one condition that I might teach you about illusion. What is it? Just take off your ring. My ring? You see, Solomon had been gifted a very special ring by his father. In it was the sacred holy name of God. And his father said to him, Always wear this ring. When you are wearing this ring, you are under God's protection. And when you take it off, you can't be sure. Well, Solomon said, I refuse to take off the ring. And the demon said, then I refuse to teach you about illusion. And Solomon said, then I'll keep you imprisoned. And the demon said, well, I don't care. And they were at a standstill. And his advisors said to him, don't take off the ring, Solomon. Don't do it. It's a trick. Don't be so unwise as to take off that ring. And the word unwise struck Solomon. It struck his pride. He said, don't you know I am known as Solomon the Wise? I know what I'll do. And the demon saw that bit of hubris. And he said, Solomon, you can outwit me. You know you can't be tricked by me. Go ahead. Take it off. Don't let them tell you what to do. And Solomon said, I'm just going to take it off for a moment. And then I'll wait until I've learned what I need to learn and put it right back on. He took off his ring. And in a moment, he felt a little breeze. And the breeze became a wind. And the ring fell out of his hand. The demon had been flapping his wings and created a turbulent wind. The ring fell out, flew out the window 
into the sea, into the moat which led to the sea, and it was gone. And the demon said, Solomon, you are a fool. You should not have done that, and now you're next. And the demon picked up Solomon and flung him out the window, and he didn't know how long he was in the air, but he landed splat. Didn't know where he was. His clothes were torn. His crown was gone. He looked around. He found a pool of water. He saw his reflection. He did not look like a king. He looked like a beggar. And as he walked along trying to find his way back, he saw that people, he asked them, can you help me? Can you lead me back to my palace? And they looked at him and said, your palace? What are you talking about, you old fool? And, and he saw that nobody was believing him. And so he stopped trying to get them to believe he was the king and only tried to get them to believe he was hungry. And he began begging for food. And finally, someone took pity on him and gave him a job in a kitchen that belonged to another king. And here was the former king mopping floors, and he realized he had never mopped a floor in his life. And he got kicked out of there. Finally, as I abbreviate this very long story, he gets pity taken on him by a blacksmith. He gets a job, and he becomes an apprentice. And he works for seven years until, at the end of seven years, the man tells him, you now have earned your freedom, gives him a bag of gold and his freedom. With the gold, Solomon buys a boat and a fishing rod. And he says, I'm going to sail back to Jerusalem and I'm going to feed myself with fish. And as he got on the water and he sailed out to sea and could no longer see the shore, he realized he was just as bad a sailor as he was a floor mopper. And he said, I'm never going to get there. I'm going to die at sea. No one will know what became of the great King Solomon. And he left his fishing line and he just held it lightly as he dozed off to sleep and thought, well, I've lived two lives. I've been a king and I've been a beggar. And I guess that is a full life for anyone. But just as he became resolved, he felt a tug on the fishing line. He gathered enough strength to pull in this large fish. The fish was in his boat. He took out a knife to cut it open, and his eyes were blinded by the light for what was inside that fish, his ring. He put the ring on his finger, and the sky grew dark, and the sky grew light, and he heard a voice. Your Majesty, do you have an answer? He opened his eyes and he saw his advisor saying, the demon has asked you for an answer. Do you have an answer? And he said, what are you talking about? I've been gone at least 20 years. And his advisor said to him, I beg your pardon, your majesty. You have sat there with your eyes closed for the last 15 minutes. And now the demon has a question for you. Do you have an answer for him? 
What's the question? <laughs> Solomon, do you think now you know about illusion? Indeed I do. You may go. And the demon was set free. And Solomon, Solomon continued to rule the land. But he had learned how to be a king from being a beggar. That is a story that is also not in the Bible, but it is in the Midrash, it is in the, um, the commentaries and the embellishments. And our hope is that what we learn from all of our experiences, whether they're biblical, whether they're stories, or whether they're the stories that we share with each other, that it helps us understand those differences. Um, the, I like the king, and the, uh, the beggar king is a powerful, powerful story um, about that recognition of economics and the differences that we have economic differences. I read it first in a book by a storyteller who had lost his voice. And how he managed his whole life and essence had been storytelling and he could no longer tell stories. And what it means to lose everything. And what we learn when we have, when we have, um, when we have limitations. So we were going to um, entertain some questions about anything, about a Jewish spiritual practice, about Judaism in general, about um, anything that people might want to know about before we conclude. Yes, sir. Sorry, wait for the microphone so we can get it on the recording. Excuse me. Is part of the, the uh, Midrash tradition or the, the definition having to do with reinterpreting uh, something from the present in, in light of having the past enlighten the present? Excellent, excellent question. What he asked is, is, is this interpretive Midrashic teaching about the past enlightening the present? Um, I don't know if it always is. When I do it, it is. <laughs> um, but I think that that's, that's part of it. I think originally it was designed to help understand the past. And yet, as, as it evolves through time, that to enlighten the present makes a lot of sense. And, and that's, how, that's, how it, um, that's how it touches me. And that's how I try to ex and explain it. Yes, that you like with parable, like with um, uh, the servant, the servant uh, uh, Messiah coming from Isaiah. Right. Is so it, to interpret the past you is mean. a type of midrash. Correct. To to redefine the present in light of the past. Ah, okay. Yeah, and and uh, and. Um, 
I would think that the, the first word you used was reinterpret. I think reinterpret might be a little more accurate than redefine. Um, because when it comes to these things, absolute truth is very hard to get at. Um, the difference between fact and belief. Uh, to me, a belief is something that you know is true, whether or not you can prove it. And doesn't need to necessarily be proven for you to know it in your heart. Right. I would just say that that's what makes it living. Nice. When you take something from the past and it's still applicable, it's living. So otherwise, you're just memorizing. Absolutely. And it, it, well, and you use the word history. Um, I like to think that history is just his story. Um, but historical facts that we learn in high school and junior high, if they help us enlighten how to live our way, how to live our lives, rather than just being facts and figures, to help us understand both things that are um, things that we want to do and follow and things that we don't. There's an awful lot in the Bible that gives us examples of parents playing favorites and siblings not getting along and all kinds of things that um, they're not in there to say you should live exactly like Jacob and Joseph and Abraham. From our perspective, um, everybody in the Bible had one thing in common, they were human. And they made human mistakes that we can learn from. Are Midrash stories still being recorded? Um, by recorded, you mean, are new ones being created? Yes, yes. excellent, excellent question. Um, so there is what we call the classic Midrash, which the story I told you about Abraham smashing the idols, that is a classic Midrash, which was created long ago. There are modern scholars who create new Midrash, um, and some of the more classical scholars don't call them midrash. Um, but for instance, there's a, uh, there's a book called um, Sisters at Sinai, which are all midrash by, um, from a woman's perspective, because most things were from male perspectives. Um, and there are others that are, um, that are sort of more geared to children. Uh, one is called Does God Have a Big Toe by Rabbi Mark Yellman. Sisters at Sinai is by Rabbi Jill Hammer, a, a leading modern female rabbi. So um, there's, yes, sir. Is it a series of midrashes? The Talmud? Yes. Okay, so the Talmud is a blend of, that includes midrash, and it includes um, interpretation of law. And so it's a, it's a blend, it's a very comprehensive, but the Talmud is when the rabbis got together in the, um, well, it was written between two and 400 in the common era. Um, but it, it includes a lot more than just Midrash. It includes subtle interpretations of law, um, and, and the arguments and disagreements 
among different scholars over the generations. So sometimes the Talmud doesn't come up with a final, a final uh, ruling, but it's a series of discussions. It, it includes the, um, how do we call it, in the, um, the, uh, the dissents. And so when there's perspective, for instance, um, there's a passage where students are asking uh, the rabbis, what is more important, study or action? And one of them says, action is more important. The other says, study is more important. And the students conclude, study is more important when it leads to action. All right, now the one who said action is more important and the one who said study is more important live generations apart. They're not in one room conversing about it. And so um, Talmud is another whole, it'll take a, you know, much more than one session to go into Talmud, but, but Midrash is included in Talmud. But the Talmud is, is that is still continuing and growing, isn't it? Ah, there's a good question. Talmud actually is fixed. The Talmud, curiously enough, was the oral law that actually it says in it, this is not supposed to be written down. It's supposed to be transmitted orally. But then in the year 200, somebody said, uh, well, we're gonna forget it if we don't write it down. <laughs> so they began writing it down. Um, but it's it sort of, that ended, um, and what, but what you might be thinking about or not thinking about is continuing from that are modern, um, what they call responsa, which would deal with things that weren't dealt with in ancient times. So things about electricity and computers and organ donations and stuff like that. So that, would, that part would be ongoing, but it's not fixed from the, t the Talmud part was fixed. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that in the Christian faith, we have many, many denominations, and we continue to split hairs and create a new denomination. It seems to me that the Jewish faith has not, have, has been able to main, maintain this centrality. And I'm wondering, is that true, number one? And if so, how do you think that was possible? Um, it's not. <laughs> the, there, are as, there are as many uh, disagreements. It is an illusion. Um, we try. So we try. There's different, um, there, there's different ways that different movements see things. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways that, Christian, that Christians interpret Christianity, a lot of different ways that Jews interpret Judaism. Um, we have a concept called Kalal Yisrael, which is the community of Israel, and we try and maintain um, civility. <laughs> but they, there's, a, there's a common expression that when you have three Jews, you have four opinions. Um, and, but we do, we do kind of honor those questions. And I think in any organized institution, you have people who feel like they know the absolute right. Uh, Houston Smith 
is a religious scholar who has written about many different religions. And if you get his book, The World's Religions of the World or World's Religions, um, each chapter is devoted to a different faith, and you feel like this might be his, because he writes it in the, in the way that a practitioner of that faith would find respectful. And he says that if ever there was declared one true religion that everyone subscribed to, the next day a second one would appear. Because somebody always feels as if he or she has a closer connection to truth. And I think part of the universality is, um, and I've been exploring lately, the difference between interfaith and multi-faith. That interfaith um, helps us get at our similarities. Multi-faith helps us honor our differences. And that differences are a recognition of beauty. And there are things that we can learn about other faith traditions that we can say, that's really neat. And it's not part of what, of what is in my heart. And to be respectful in that way. Yes, last one. So, um, so I have a question about differences and purity, which is my understanding comes up in scripture. Um, and to this day, uh, creates problems for interfaith, uh, ecumenism, um, and there's something that is suspicious, that word, about differences, and um, that often religion calls for a certain kind of purity that creates problems between the different understandings. Um, can you define what you mean by purity? <laughs> um, it's more a belief than a fact. <laughs> um, <clears throat> to keep oneself separate, I guess, to keep things separate. I know in chemistry, it's important to keep, have a, an integrity between the different um, chemicals, and if they're not kept separately, they can, they become, um, it, it creates problems. So that's just one sense of purity. Right, so um, once upon a time, um, people seem to feel like my way is the only way. And if you mix a little bit of uh, nitrogen in with hydrogen, you could have all kinds of problems. Um, and so we were separate geographically. We were separate in dress. We were separate in foods we ate, separate in the churches we go to. And, and to maintain purity felt like, let's keep everyone else away. I'm an optimist. I believe that that is not necessary and that the more we get to know people as people rather than categories. And I think that that's the, I think that's the division is the labels and the categories to say, I am this, which means I can't communicate with that. Or 
I am this and feel strong about my identity and am happy to share it with those who are interested without imposing it on others and am happy to learn about others. And it's, it's a matter of, of attitude. So I'd like to conclude with, um, with a story that, that, might, that might feel connected to what you're, you're asking. Um, in the Jewish tradition, the Sabbath begins Friday at sundown and ends Saturday at sundown. And there was a rabbi who was teaching his students about when officially you can end the Sabbath. That there's a ceremony called Havdalah, which means the separation, um, and it's the separation of night and day, and the separation of day and night. And, the, um, and that there's an official time. The official time the rabbi taught was and is when three stars are visible in the sky. That's official. When you see three stars in the sky, then you can end the Sabbath. So one of the students asked, well, if day ends and night begins when three stars are visible in the sky, when does night end and day begin? And so, like any good teacher, the rabbi said, what do you think? And the students came up with ideas. Perhaps it's when, from a distance, you can tell the difference between a fig tree and a date tree. And the rabbi said, excellent guess, what's wrong? And another said, perhaps it's when you can tell the difference between a sheep and a goat. And the rabbi said, that's also wrong. And every guess they came up with wasn't satisfactory until finally the student who initially asked the question said, well, rabbi, when is it, you tell us, when is it that night ends and day begins? And the rabbi said, when you can look into the eyes of a stranger and see your brother or your sister, until then, it will always be dark for us. Thank you for being here, being such an engaging group of people.